This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, filmmaker Tina Satter on telling the story of Reality Winner. New York Magazine did an article about her. Um, and I think the title was something like America's Biggest Terrorist Has a Pikachu Bedspread. I was like, oh my God, this person is super, super, super interesting. We could make a play with this, I think. Something that was like interesting to talk about with the actors in both the play and the movie is that all three of those people in real life that day were acting, right? The transcript. It was like a page turner to me. Like, oh my God, when did they get her? Oh my, when does she admit? What is going on here? Why are they talking about cats again? I, this, I just was totally fell into this document. Tina Satter, welcome to Chatter. It's great to have you on our show. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I am too. Um, so our listeners probably are familiar uh, with your new movie, Reality, which you wrote and directed. And if they haven't seen it, as I suspect many have, they almost certainly know uh, the story of Reality Winner, who, of course, uh, was the woman who was uh, went to prison for divulging classified information to journalists, which is a subject that is back in the news and something I've been involved in <laughs> lately with classified leaks, which we can talk about. Um, for people who haven't seen it, highly recommend it. It is a truly riveting, fascinating movie. I loved the film, so I'm really, really happy that you could be here to talk to us about it and how you came to that story. Um, but what I thought we might start with is uh, your background. Before You have spent most of your career uh, in theater, where you've been a playwright, a producer, a director, uh, had, had quite a notable and successful career in the theater. So tell us a bit about your background, where you grow up, and, and how how did you make it to a career producing theater? Uh, sure. Um, I grew up in New Hampshire um, and I was a pretty late bloomer to um, theater theater as a career. Um, I wasn't someone who, who went to a conservatory or anything. I was an English major um, at Bowdoin College in Maine. Uh -huh. And so even all through undergrad, I just wasn't like I was thinking I would probably coach field hockey um, like <laughs> and teach English. Um, I, I was not theater focused yet, which truly so many of the people I've gone on to work with, you know, it's, it's usually something that starts sooner. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd been interested in the arts and, and, you know, exposed to things, but I didn't think of it as a, like a life thing I would, you know, delve into. And, um, anyways, I ended up living out in Portland, Oregon, um, a year or so after I graduated from college and on a weird whim started, um, taking acting lessons and quickly realized I was not a very good actor at all. <laughs> at all. But I, I was like, I, I, there's something about this, this form that's really fascinating to me. Like this way of like live people and figuring something out on stage. And I was working at that time with very experimental theater makers, mm -hmm. which actually became my world a bit, even in New York, like not like the more experimental or the, contemporary avant-garde or there's a whole bunch of semantic terms for it but um mm -hmm. I just really it just became you know at that point really intriguing to me as a way to think about questions I had or that you could like play them up on stage and, and work with live people like I said was really intriguing and so um eventually I moved to New York City and went to graduate school for playwriting at Brooklyn College and there was a teacher there named Mac Wellman who was really seminal and so mm -hmm. many people today from like 
Annie Baker to, you know, Young Jean Lee and others like, you know, have studied with Mac. And that was, I was still at that point in time, my full-time life was like being a person who wrote like copy and PR agencies. Oh, interesting. Like that. So I still was like nine to five in it and through grad school. But um, once I was in grad school, I... I was there for playwriting and in a playwriting program, but that corner of New York City I was in was very much like you might make your own play and direct even what you wrote, mm. which is what I started doing. So yeah, that was really you know, that's really really where it started. And I mean, by the even in grad school, it was like I was making stuff and starting to show it in New York City, and I would have a you know a day job for several more years. But just sort of kept hustling up up the theater world. Um, I had my own company, which is still around, called. Um, Half Straddle, which made, you know, made the play, is this a room that went on to be the movie reality? And Mm -hmm. yeah, just kept working away, Um, usually writing, directing plays I wrote myself, working with the same group of people and um, being in sort of what was called in New York, like the downtown world, which is more the, you know, or off off Broadway, but we'd often tour to Europe and stuff. And then um, is this a room, the play about reality winner and the transcript did sort of break me that play went to off Broadway, break me into the more mainstream. And then that play also went to Broadway. So that, and by that point I was fully just working as a theater maker. Wow. So Portland is my hometown. Coincidentally. Oh really? Yeah. I love yeah, it. Yeah. My mom still lives there. Um, and so what, what drew you to Portland and how did you get into, I don't think of Portland as having like a big theater scene. I mean, granted I moved away a bit when I was younger, but like, what was it about Portland that drew you in and like, what make you first decide to take acting lessons? Oh, sure. So I, had you know, I grew up in a very like this New England trajectory, you know, like in New Hampshire, and then I went to mm-hmm. Bowdoin College. Like the idea of like where I came from was you go to a good small liberal arts school, and like I said, I mean, I, and I was having a great time through all that, and right. I thought I would, you know, go, work then coaching field hockey and teaching English at a private school. But something inside me, right when that was kind of time to think about trying to really do that, was like I don't know, and it was like this. I, I started having that kind of floaty thing, which I don't think is uncommon for mm. like a, a 22 year old at, at all. You know, even at the time I felt I'd messed up my whole life. I'm like, here I am. I've had all these amazing <laughs> to do things and I don't know what I want to do at all. And, and, you know, it was like, you know, pretty distraught over like, what is my life in a very like middle-class way. You know what I mean? It was yeah. not, I was going to be fine, but, and then I had some job that I got cause my, parents were obsessed always that I had insurance then. So there's some job with insurance at like a finance company, which was just like, so on who I was. Right. And so then I was really depressed. And, um, basically if you, the time period I graduated from Bowdoin, you either went to Boston or somehow people went to San Francisco. So I was like, mm. I had these friends, these other East coast kind of friends who were like in San Francisco. So I'm like, maybe I'll go West. And then because Portland was just totally random, just a little bit of a long-winded answer, but I had a really good friend who was a year ahead of me in school that I'd gone to high school with in Hopkins in New Hampshire, and she was living in Portland, Oregon. Mm. And she, her name is Christina Melander, and um, she still lives there. And um, she had a job at Willamette Week. Oh, yeah. Arts writer at Willamette Week, and she's like, if you come here, you know, because I that's what I thought I sort of would do, would maybe write, like, with an English degree, like, She's like, if you move out here, maybe we can get an internship or something. And I had never thought of Portland or Oregon, like out since the Oregon Trail game when I was like really <laughs> young. Yeah, don't die <laughs> of dysentery, exactly. <laughs> Anyways, I like it was this really like, what do I have to lose feeling? And I yeah. like got on a plane with my stuff packed up and um 
moved out there. And it was, a, for me, a really life-changing eight years. And I think it was leaving the bubble of New England. And I, and I love New England and feel very attached to it. And like, you know, my, my family goes back really deeply there, but it was the West Coast really um, was really helpful for me at that point in time. Like, to, to see, like, I had, that sounds crazy now, but there were like people with tattoos and like mm-hmm. really smart people who hadn't gone to college. Like this sounds so crazy, but I was from such a specific kind of like world. And it, it just really opened something up in me that there was more out there and, and, you know, in Portland. And it, I think that's part of what led me to take acting class. Like I, I, I just felt like things were more possible there. And I had, been, you know, I've been in like little kid acting things in my town growing up, but yeah, I just did that on a whim. And then the company, and I don't know if they're still there in Portland, that was really cool. And I'm sure maybe your mom or people do know of them was Amago Theater. Okay. That's who cast me in something. And they were really, really interesting. Um, this couple, um, Carol and Jerry, and they were, they were either deconstructing classics or making their own plays. And they were really influenced by what was the New York avant-garde then. And there are still people and that are like were influ- have gone on to become influences to me, like the Worcester Group and Richard Maxwell. So they were like this like mini education to me of something. Wow. Like I came in not studying theater, but d- coming into like this deep, like, you know, experimental theater. So like you jumped theater. into avant-garde theater yes, with no theater background. I jumped into it t- totally That's without. Wild. Yeah, that was my, you know coming to Portland and, and kind of falling in some weird, deep, instinctual way into theater, uh, yeah. starting there, out there. Do you remember what you felt the first time that you've had to get up on a stage and perform or read lines in front of people? Like, I felt, I don't like this. I'm getting no energy <laughs> from this. You know, because now I've gone on years of working with incredible actors and like doing a little more stuff on stage here and there. I just remember not feeling an engagement with it and realizing that's what actors must feel, right? And you can see that when it's good, right? When the good mm. live actors and like, I, I'm not enjoying this and it's just kind of totally scary. And I think it's scary for act, actor, actors and great actors still, but it, I could tell something was missing from the exchange for me. But I did like the feeling of being up on a stage with people and like locking eyes with people and knowing mm-hmm. you have to get through this together. And I had played a lot of team sports. So that part of it I liked, but it was much more fun to try to win a field hockey game than to try to like <laughs> get through the play on stage. I, I love being outside a play and like you feel like you win on certain nights in a play, but I don't like being on the field for the play. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. there's a point probably I did a lot of uh, acting in high school and college, didn't go on to do it professionally, but I think there's a point at which you think, you know, I enjoy this, but, you know, I, I chose writing more as, as a profession because I felt like that felt more at home to me. Like when I was acting, it always felt like I was acting and it didn't give me the same charge as sort of writing something and watching people kind of produce the story. Although it was great fun, but you kind of have right. to pick, pick a path in some ways. Totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So you get to New York and you're in the kind of the downtown art scene. What, what year is that roughly? Like what years are you there? Um, I started grad school in like 2007. Okay. Yeah. So is that, I'm thinking like the, da- is like the downtown scene, like Chloe Sevigny, Natasha Lyonne, that kind of thing? Or is it like, who are some of the, the names and yeah, faces? I mean, they're downtown, but they're not the downtown like theater scene. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, there, it's a very nuanced thing, but like the, the biggie, the big mothership of that 
moment. Well, there's an artist named Richard Foreman, but the one people might know indirectly is the Worcester group because it's where Willem Dafoe comes up. Ah, like yeah. he's and Spalding Gray. Like, oh, okay. You know, it's the Worcester group is like, like really big deal. And then, so they're sort of the center of the world. I mean, they've been going since the late seventies. So I'm there much later than that, but I really come into a scene that is like after them and the other like Richard Maxwell is another big name, but he's really just such a deep theater maker that I don't, you know, outside of New York or theater world, but making really interesting work that doesn't necessarily look like normal theater, which of course the Worcester groups didn't either, which really seminal stuff, but like, but highly regarded too, not just totally weird, <laughs> weirdo stuff. But yeah, so the, the names, like the Worcester is sort of the shiniest name anyone would know. And then you might see like at that point in time, like, you know, you might see like Lou Reed, those people might come down to those shows, like gotcha. that sort of stuff. That reminds me kind of like, you know, a group called the Open Theater. I think that was when they did like a show called The Serpent back in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, so this is, exactly. Ex- yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. So very yeah. experimental things that were, like you said, deconstructing known works but but really i mean kind of that's that that's pretty like edgy performance how did you jump into that as a writer like what were you thinking about uh as you know how you wanted to write in an experimental space well my plays are pretty normal within that like i you know because when i used especially when i did more interviews as a like early experimental theater maker early in my career be like my plays like have a beginning middle and end that's human beings talking to each other because you actually had to like say that because it might just be something much more um abstracted um so and there were there were models ahead of me and one was Richard Maxwell I mean again just to say a name I don't like may not have meaning to a ton of people but his kinds of plays which were straightforward plays but done in a certain style and like less concerned with huge machinations of plot were really inspiring to me. And then there was another theater maker at the time named Young Jean Lee, who also made essentially play plays, but they they had really cool aesthetics, really cool style. Like the acting style wasn't as big as maybe you'd see on Broadway. Mm -hmm. So my, I could write sort of like normally and straightforward and tell the kind of stories I want to tell, but like it was more sort of about aesthetics and formalism. Mm -hmm. Um, So it wasn't like, so I, I, it was, that's why I think I was drawn to it too. Like I did like to write and I liked to like have a, a, you know, a, um, a legible story, but I wasn't necessarily drawn to like the idiom of normal theater, like aesthetically or formally. Yeah. So, and and yeah. I can I can it's interesting. I'm I'm seeing how now maybe this kind of leads into uh um reality and before that yeah. this is a room the play. So let's let's talk about the banana. So how did you come to the story of reality winner and and what did you know about her before you decided to write about her? Right, right. So she obviously June 3rd, 2017, the day of the movie and the first day that reality is in the news, or maybe she's not even in the American news till June 4th, 2017. But I did not, like many, many, many people I've now talked to, I really didn't take in her case at all Mm. that summer. Like I remember knowing her name, like the name was like, the name's so like crazy, quote unquote, like and weird. Sounds unusual, yeah. Yeah, and I can remember seeing like the mugshot picture of her in the New York Times but I don't even think if someone asked me that summer or fall what reality winner was charged with, I don't 
I had just not paid attention to it. And to my very like kind of generalist news reading, it was not a huge story. Like mm-hmm. I, like the way I, I mean, I'd actually been really interested in Snowden and Chelsea Manning, but that you could read a ton about just by sort of being a very average news follower. And I did reality wasn't in coming up in the way, the same way, but, and I wasn't like tracking it down. And I, I do think I think I, other people told me, I think I even somehow thought she was vaguely related to like a reality TV idea. And <laughs> so yeah. I don't, yeah, I just didn't pay yeah. a ton of attention. And it was six months later that New York magazine um, did an article about her. Um, and I think the title was something like America's biggest terrorist has a Pikachu bedspread. Um and New York Magazine was like an online thing, like their online version. I would usually cruise through like a couple of times a week just to free reading, like to find whatever. And I literally stumbled upon that article and that the headline got me. And also there were more pictures of reality. And I just was like, wow, like this young woman. And then I'm reading the story about her and her, her fascinating background where to me was totally fascinating and this unexpected. And I, I was like, Oh my God, this person is super, super, super interesting. Yeah. And still just like, wow, I'm reading a cool article. And then somewhere in that near that article, they had a link that said like, read about the day reality was visited at our home by the FBI. And so I just like click that still just in this, like I'm reading about this person mode. And that went to Politico and it was like this scanned PDF of the transcript. And I was like, really like, whoa, it looked like a play to me. Mm -hmm. Like, and it had this, well, the seal at the top didn't look like the FBI seal at the top of the first page didn't look like a play, but like kind of was like this exciting marker. I'm like, oh my God, it's this real document. And then where a play would say characters, this said participants and listed reality that Agent Garrick, Agent Taylor, and then someone named Unknown Male. I mean, the Unknown Male was the first thing I was like, what is this? Right. And then just as I was reading it, I just, it was like, I mean, I was clicking through it, but it was like a page turner to me, that first mm. read even. I mean, and I read it, I mean, of course, knew at that point, Reality Winner is in prison. And I just read all about her, like, you know, two minutes before I'm reading it. But I was like, Oh my God, when did they get her? Oh my, when does she admit? What is going on here? Why are they talking about cats again? I, this, I just like totally <laughs> fell into this document and I, I finished reading it and I wrote an email like to the actress who would go on to play her on stage, Emily Davis, who's, you know, a great friend and a longtime theater collaborator at that point and was like, do you know who this girl is? We could make a play with this, I think. Like, because it's um, dialogue. You've had yeah. dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, and it, I mean, again, I have to keep referencing someone like, you know, a, a small but smart group of people in the world know. It felt, I think I was like, it feels like a Richard Maxwell play, this very straightforward sort of, like, even though they're not straightforward because it's so like neorealism, it's the actual words, but there's just a very direct way of talking in it. And I, it felt, it, that's too to me, it felt like plays I knew in a weird way. So I just, it felt like, and it, the thriller aspect also made me feel like this could also be a movie, but my first way into something at that point was definitely a play. Right. So what was your, so, so, so for folks who remember that this or, or who haven't seen the film, they did the, the, the the movie itself, the dialogue, is the transcript. And you make this very clear to the viewer when when it starts. So, like, what you're about to see is the transcript of these two FBI agents who are recording the moment that they show up to Reality Winner's house on suspicion that she has downloaded this 
secret, top secret document from work where she works at an, it's an NSA facility, I think, right? Yes. Um, and then has sent it uh, to the Intercept, this, this um, uh, media organization. So when did you make the decision that I want to do this as a story, but I, I don't want to rewrite it. I don't want to editorialize it. I just want to use the words that were spoken. What, what made you decide to go that route? Because it's, it's, a, it's a very unconventional route for a show about you know, real events that were in the news. Yeah. I mean, the first thing was just like this incredible artistic challenge because it felt so complete to me. Like, you know, the first word is like, this introduction and the last word on the, you know, on the transcript is like literally says the date and the time like ending it. And it just felt super complete to me, you know, in, in a kind of eerie way. And so I was like, just so intrigued by that, like artistically, like, can this, can this do it? And I would get art actor friends together in the city, just in our apartments, or sometimes we'd, you know, rent studio space and just have them read through it over and over. Emily Davis would always read reality, but we'd get other people to read the agent characters. And I was also sort of secretly casting in my head too, but like, mm-hmm. and we'd finish reading it every time. And I'd be like, oh my God, I think there's something there. And everyone would be like, yeah, maybe. But I just could feel there was something in it. And then once, a little bit along, once I was like, I really think I love the challenge of this. And then I started to really, like when it really sunk in and it, it took like a little bit of you know, a little bit of time, you know, weirdly or and embarrassingly enough to be like, oh, she's real. She's living. This person's in prison. I mean, I knew that, but I had gotten so focused on the transcript yeah. as, as a mode that I was like, and she's a family. And I'm like, okay, the other thing that if, if we tell this, cause I think we have this incredible opportunity to like see the state at work in a small room in a small yes. house, like in one day in 2017 is if we do like, this is the first word, this is the last word, everything in between was what was said um, is like the most strong way to, to do this. Like it, it's almost a version of not necessarily neutrality, but like, this is actually what happened. This is their record of it. Like this is from the FBI's administrative document of this day. Yeah. And what I found so compelling about this, and I have to say when I was watching the film and it, and it kind of pops up and you kind of, you know, kind of warn, not warn, but you alert viewers right. to the fact that you're going to see as a transcript. It was kind of like, I kind of gasped for a second because of that. Oh my God, this is a great idea. Like, I mean, <laughs> because I've read, I've read transcripts so many times and you're absolutely right. It, it is dialogue and you're looking for the story and, you know, and this is essentially, it's an interrogation, but it also starts out where she doesn't know why they're there. They keep asking, do you know why we're here? You know, there are pets in the background that need to be taken care of. Like all of these complicating elements start coming into the story. And what it doesn't feel like is like so many shows that fall into or movies that fall into the cliche of this is how FBI people talk. And this is what it sounds like in an interrogation. (laughs) It's like at times it's banal and it's like utterly tense. <laughs> and there's something about the natural language and just the kind of administrative way they speak sometimes that it just feels incredibly authentic, even though, you know, 99.9% of people who see this will have never been visited by an FBI agent. It feels incredibly real, I suppose, because it was. I, totally. I mean, totally. It, that was sort of like such an undeniable draw to it. And I think the other thing too, in terms of like, can this tell reality stories? Because they're questioning her 
all this exposition, the details about her that were so fascinating to me when I read the longer form article come out like you in this great way, you, you know, crazy, traumatic way. But reality talks a bit about her relationship to the military. You learn that she speaks these languages. You learn that she teaches yoga and has her music on an iPhone. So that's also sort of such great, you know, you get all these character details within it, too. That And that was really um, exciting to think can that hold for building character like from what was also in this document mm-hmm. there's a, there's a scene in the beginning of the movie where we see her at work and she's in this very nondescript office space and she's sitting in a cubicle um and and i believe it's fox news is playing like on the tvs uh, in the room and it starts to kind of go to a sense of like is there something motivating her to leak this particular document, which is about Russian interference in, in the 2016 election, which, of course, became a very politicized topic and, you know, in, in, in the media as well. Was that something that she spoke to uh, or, 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 or I mean, how did when, in terms of like your choice to set up this this scene before she gets met by the FBI? What was your thinking about how to do that? Well, I mean, yeah, it's like that day is referred to a number of times in the transcript itself. Right. Like it. Mm-hmm. They eventually, like whether, I think they know the whole time what day she did everything right, but there's a lot of back and forth, like what day did you do this? Try to think, remember personal details, and they come back to it. And then, you know, do you remember what day of the week that is? And finally, like it comes out, it was definitely May 9th, right? Which was the Comey day, because that looms so large for me personally. Where he gets, where Comey gets fired. Yes, and in that, and I, that felt like the craziest day that so much would go on to make that seem like a drop in the bucket as reality says at one point, but like to, at the time to me and so many people I was talking to and even working on versions of this project with, we remember that day so clearly. Right. So I don't, so it was really interesting to like bring back that footage and it would have been what was on the screen. And she does say also in the transcript that she had to file reports because they constantly had Fox news on. So that's where it's like, mm an imagining of that. But I, reality did tell me that, that there would have been Fox News, like that day she would have had Fox News. That's all they played there. Um, so it, again, came from the clues of the transcript yeah. mostly. So you, you alluded to you know, re, uh, talking to reality winners. So when did you get the chance to meet her? I mean, were you able to, because she, she, was she in prison when the play was staged? She was in prison through all the early stages of the play and off-Broadway. And so I never was able to speak to her directly, but was in touch with her mom, Billy Winner Davis, and her sister, Brittany Winner, throughout mm-hmm. that process. And then reality was released into home um, confinement in June 2021. And the play was like just starting to gear up to go to Broadway the fall of 2021. So there was one more um, life of the play, but and so I could, I started speaking to reality, but at that point there was like, it was just getting to meet her finally, like, and not about, and, but was gearing up on the movie. So any conversations with her, which started in June, 2021 were about the movie at that point in terms of her like input. So, so as a creator, as a writer and, and someone who's producing and directing this, I mean, obviously you have your source material, it's her words. So what what do you get from ta- being able to talk to her? I mean, is it can she tell you like what she was thinking when she was having this conversation? And does that help inform the actors performances? How does that work? So for me, I, I, I've never spoken to reality and said, how did you feel that day? Mm. Or what was it like emotionally? Wow. Um, I, I, it was like, uh, and never with her family. 
either. I mean, we've gone on to have conversations where they've shared it, but it's, that's never informed directly the work. And they gave a great trust in like letting me and my collaborators always sort of like knowing we were using the transcript, interpret that. Um, so when I was talking to reality, once I was able to talk to her, it was always I, detail oriented about the movie. I mean, it became very sort of logistical at a certain point. Like we needed to know how many cars we could like to hire, like to, it's a whole, you know, big deal, especially on a small indie movie like ours, how many cars are needed for like the scenes where the agents drive up. And I was, so I would ask her questions like that. She would often share details that were, would, would sometimes dip into her emotional things, but like somehow I always keep that separate or something, but I will say reality and Sydney Sweeney who portrays reality in the movie had their own conversations like that Sydney asked if she, oh, you know, wanted to be in touch with reality once she was cast. I asked reality if she was, um, wanted down to speak with Sydney. She was like, sure. And so they spoke and I do think they had more conversations potentially about how reality was feeling and stuff that Sydney, um, used. And we talked a bit about that, but yeah. I love this. This is such an interesting approach too, because, you know, often so often actors and directors will have a conversation about, you know, what's motivating me here? What's my goal in the scene? What am I trying to do? But it sounds like also that 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 Sydney is having a conversation with reality and forming kind of an internal set of motivations, maybe and ideas. Did she then come and share them with you and say, here's how I'm thinking of playing this scene? Or did you just say kind of just play it off the transcript, however you think it should go? Yeah, sort of a hybrid of that. I mean, Sydney is an incredibly smart actor and, and I, you know, like, and, it, and I, and I think making things is all about a kind of trust, right? Like that's mm -hmm. like, and especially this was a pretty scrappy movie, right? It was a small, it really started out as a very small indie overall. And so once, you know, I had had a conversation with Sydney before she even put herself on tape. And so I, there was a way I felt you know, if I'm casting her, we, we've got something like almost an unspoken trust now, right? A, mm -hmm. a writer, I mean, a writer, director and actor thing, but at that point, you know, mostly director, actor. And then I then trusted whatever she was going to get with reality. So she, I wasn't like, tell me everything, but like, it, it just sort of, once you're in that good trust zone with a director and actor, like Sydney and I were in, you're sort of just chatting and she'd be like, you know, something reality told me and she literally didn't know why they, when they first drove up that day, what they were there for. And I was like, Oh, I actually never knew that. And she's like, yeah. So she's like, so then she, I'm like, great. That's like, that's helpful. And then she's mm -hmm. building that into whatever performance she's doing in various takes. Do you know what I mean? And so yeah. most of the time she's like building in this, in this movie with Sydney's performance, she's built, you know, we've agreed on sort of a baseline and then it's in later stuff. We might play with options for the story. Like, is she more upset now? Is she less upset? But like, yeah, it was really letting and trusting that Sydney's getting what she needs to make her performance and not micro managing it just because it was also becoming clear. She was going to be delivering this really incredible, like under the skin performance like you could see that once we were starting to shoot so yeah not wanting to interfere too much with that you know and seeing where she was going to take it based on what she had identified herself reading the script and with what she had gleaned from speaking to reality 
Yeah, and that under the skin aspect of it, I mean, it really comes across, and, and her face is just so incredibly expressive, too, and you can do things in film that maybe are harder to do in, in theater with capturing those those glimpses. And one of the things, the way I think the movie succeeds, you know, largely probably because of her performance, is you're coming to it, you know what happens. I mean, most people probably who see this film know what happens. They know who Reality Winner is. They know that she goes to prison, and yet the movie is incredibly tense, and you're like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And you're, and you're sort of, it is a very suspenseful movie even though you know the ending and i think that's also down to the way that the fbi agents are approaching her it's kind of halting and it's tentative and it's furtive and they're kind of talking elliptically and around things and it is this really interesting picture of what it looks like when the fbi approaches this person who they believe they know what she's done but they're almost trying to get her to say it and so there's this really interesting kind of imbalance between these three characters. Totally. I uh, totally, I mean, and I think something that was like interesting to talk about with the actors in both the play and the movie is that all three of those people in real life that day were acting, right? Yes. Like, like, I mean, and I've, I talked to one, um, there was one woman who consulted a bit for the movie on some FBI stuff, a former FBI agent. And I was like, that, that just seems like when you go and do that kind of like, you know, they call it an interview. Um, you're acting She's like straight up. It's a hundred percent. You've prepped, you planned, you're doing your performance that day. And then of course, reality is performing for a very long time to, you know, avoid saying really specific things to that conversation. So that's, super fascinating those layers that they are um they are doing too amidst all that imbalance and balance of it all did you get to meet the fbi agents no i i've never the, the i haven't we have me and many other people now related to the projects have tried to like look them up the only thing i've ever seen and maybe you or others have seen more is a courtroom drawing of agent garrick wow. um who someone who worked on the play once said, that guy doesn't look like he does CrossFit, but I don't know if <laughs> that is fair or true, but it's kind of funny. Do you so know no, if they've they seen the movie? No, I, we don't. Um, I don't know. Any, I mean, I sort of the way I'm like, like reality's always had bigger fish to fry than these projects, although she's been incredibly generous and supportive. And I'm assuming the FBI might too, but I don't, I don't know. It's, it's funny to think that now they are embodied on screen, which is, you know, much more tangible than a play yeah. that is yeah. like so much memorable. But yeah. Another thing you do in the, in the movie that's so interesting is in the transcript where there are lines that are redacted, maybe because it refers to something classified, um, the, 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 the screen kind of goes wobbly and things are sort of like, you know, fuzzed out. Can you talk a little bit about that choice of, of visually representing redactions in the actual transcript? Yeah. I mean, like, so you were saying you'd read, you read a lot of transcripts, which makes sense. I had not read a ton of them. I, of course, had seen them and I knew what a, like a redaction bar was, but it was really striking to me when I would read the transcript um, to come to the, the black bars on the page even. It was just so evocative, right? Yeah. Like, right there is a sense of like someone is controlling something and you can't see something. And they just formally and visually those black bars were just kind of do something. And so um, I, I really wanted to keep the rhythm of those and try to figure out how we could do them filmically. And it also felt like there was room to, to play with that in particular because of 
like the tricks you can do on film mm -hmm. with editing and shooting and everything. So the goal was to, to try to sort out how to honor those. And it actually was a lot of experimenting in the editing of things that could be a little more cryptic to what the information was. And, but it was always just strongest to go back to this idea that like the way a redaction mark disappears, what's being said, right? Like it's kind of super simple, but like disappearing reality then, or disappearing a couple of times, the met, like they are gone in that moment. We can't hear or know that. Um, so it just, it, that was something once we came to experiment with that felt right and powerful and helped add to the tension of those moments, which was, they always happen in really tense moments. So you don't want to have to cut that and then build back up again. And, and then did that sort of meta thing of there's a moment of confusion, even I think as a watcher, you're like, you don't get something, which maybe is like frustrating, but the conversation keeps going. And, and I personally don't mind that kind of confusion in things I see your watch, like, like where you have to keep leaning forward. So I think we were all, excited to sort of put that into the movie once I was working with the editor and yeah. And, and then building out score around those two. Yeah. It has even a way of raising the stakes because suddenly the, the, the viewer is thinking, Ooh, this is super secret. It's really sensitive. Maybe she's in really big trouble. Um, because of course all the time, you know, they're investigating her for having done something just for having disclosed secrets for having shown the world, the things that are supposed to be sort of figuratively redacted from them. I thought that that worked great. The, the other thing that's, that's so interesting, I was talking with friends actually about this last night, who knew I was going to be chatting with you is the role that the pets play in this film, in this story. There's, there, there's a cat that's inside, right? It's a cat, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Who they're afraid of the cat <laughs> running out and getting lost, or maybe the cat's going to be injured. And it's just this, it's, it's it adds another character, but it's one things that's so effective is it raises the tension, but it's also this kind of weird, like quotidian concern. Like she has a pet, but everyone's kind of worried about the pet, but you're like, wait a second, they're here to possibly arrest her for stealing classified information. And I, I we talked a little bit about playing with the, you know, it's in, it's referred to in the transcript, but what you were able to do with having this other kind of complication floating around in the background there. Yeah. I mean, the, the animals are, are, were a fascinating thing to me, the first read, because the agents are really obsessed with like the, they would start saying things like it's a cat under the bed. And one of them says it'll probably go under the bed or it's on the bed. Like they get really into literally where the cat is. Right. So that almost is surreal and funny, but yeah, I think like what you're saying, that quotidian detail, I mean that again, what was so striking about this document, getting this record inside this thing that actually happened and it happens at this like 25 year old girl's house, right? Like yeah. is that that is one of the actual concerns of that, day and it's so human right she's not sitting at like a metal table in an fbi office she's literally in the most vulnerable place her own home thinking no one was even going to come over that day and then she and she's defending herself you know against like the fbi and these major things they're alleging at that point about her huge leaks but yeah but the, one of the big actual concerns and it's just so earthy and real is like for reality, for sure. And this is something we talked about. And she has said she was completely afraid that cat was going to run out. And mm -hmm. she was afraid for the cat's safety, but she also was afraid 
if she suddenly ran to stop the cat, she was going to get shot. Like, oh, that's geez. something I didn't yeah. know for a long So then you start, like, then the stakes go from quotidian to like, oh, that's yeah. how intense it is to be anyone home alone with 11 armed men at your house, let alone a young woman, right? And and no one, as reality, this is another thing she ended up sharing with me. No one knew she was there. Like, she's like, normally my neighborhood had all these people like walking around on a weekend. And she's like, for some reason, no one was out that day. And I kept thinking, no one even knows what's happening right now. And here, yeah. you know, if this goes wrong. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. It, it, and it's in it. There are also these interesting moments where, the dialogue between her and the agents, it's almost kind of friendly. And it's, they talk about weightlifting and they're talking about, you know, things that make it sound like they're having an almost pleasant conversation. And it sort of makes you forget that, no, they're actually here with a search warrant and they're now going to go through every part of your house. It's just that, that kind of, that dissonance is just, it's going all throughout the story and it, it, and it, and it's really effective. And another thing that I think people might be surprised that, that this isn't something that was that you made up. This is literally how that whole day went down. And I think there's something just like just incredibly human about that. Um, one way that the reality winner story, I will say this resonates a lot with journalists. And I'm curious if you have a thought on this is her case often is held up uh, and the intercept reporters aren't here right now. So I don't want to, you know, they would have a response to this, but it often gets held up as a kind of instance of careless handling of a source, which is to say that the intercept got this document. Um, the document is reproduced in such a way that the government is able to tell based on sort of very hard to see markings on the document, which printer it came from. Uh, you know, I may have some of those, maybe you learn more details that that's not quite right, but it's often kind of held up as that reality winner, you know, didn't, obviously did not intend to get caught, but that this was a case where the people handling her case, you know, weren't sensitive enough. But I, I don't know if that ever came up in your research or if you, if you have thoughts on that. Well, I mean, what you described is very much how I understand what happened too. So that's, I know the same thing. And I think, um, you know, I, when I, when we did the play um, off Broadway that we had a lot of talkbacks and there was some really fascinating lawyers that came from New York, um, that based in New York that came one night to do the talk back that work at a firm that specializes in working with whistleblowers. So that was really, really interesting. And, you know, and this is, I, you know, we could clean this too. She was going to get caught, right? Like it's reality winner was going to get caught for this yeah. because of the printer stuff. So best case scenario, she, like, I think what, you know, I've come to think and others like that, like have huge empathy for reality, but you know, the intercept hadn't even published it yet. So she really didn't even know if they were going to run it right that yeah. day. They're talking to her, which yeah. I is fascinating to think in her mindset is she, if she could have had more time to like get a lawyer, you know what I mean? And have this go a little better. She may not have spent as much time in prison. Cause once she goes away on June 3rd, 2017, she just never even gets out on bail. Right. And that's what's super, super intense too to her story. So I think best case was she would have bought herself some time and possibly a better defense. But um, yeah, I don't, with the, the stuff with the intercept, it's like, I, I never know how to think about it. Right. Like I, I, to me, I guess they're one, like, sloppy point is the person they went to fact check with wasn't someone who wasn't going to immediately turn it in, which is what happened. Right. Mm -hmm. As I understand it, that mm -hmm. that person could have said, this is legitimate. And I'm also going to keep quiet because I know you all solicit stuff 
specifically to do this. And it, once it runs, someone will get her anyways, you know? Yeah. And, and, and talk a bit about, you know, the sentence that reality winner received, because, you know, obviously, you know, disclosing classified information is something the government takes seriously. We there's a fairly prominent case playing out right now about yes, that involving yes. both the former president and you know a former Air National Guardsman in Massachusetts. But she got a really stiff sentence, I think most people feel. And and just talk talk a bit about as you thought about this story, what are your thoughts on you know the justice involving reality winner was it was it too much was it enough i mean what, what do you think about that it's so complicated and i think that our like clearly the state and a law like the espionage act has not necessarily kept pace with like right like digital age in the security state right and like how life has actually evolved so you sort of have these like essentially archaic scaffoldings around like how many people now have access to information. And if we are a democracy and, and believe whistleblowers or people who can like call out things are necessary to keep checks and balances when they're um, charged under the espionage act, they have like literally no way to defend that. Right. So you're not even allowing that venue of, of, of that checks and balances coming from the people of the, of the country of the state. So that's like, to me that it's like, so that's really big. That's like, you know, really going back to like thinking deeply and making changes in a holistic way, which doesn't seem like that's what (laughs) happens, you know, at this, at our government level. So then, so to me, yes, of course, reality is like punished. Why? Like it was something that was literally, useful to election boards and that Congress cited like it was and and she was like calling out truth to something that was being either lied about and or like diverted from the actual truth and it and in the end she wasn't putting anyone else in danger but like it so then there's this hard line but like you have to have those rules in place so people don't get in danger but clearly she had this crazy punishment. And I don't like for what, since it was useful and also she was clearly not a threat. I mean, I don't, it's still to me, and this is in the movie, but like, it's still so wild to me, the section at the end of the movie where we use that archival of her prosecutors outside the court when they say this is the quintessential example of an insider threat. Mm Mm-hmm. I always laugh. It's like a very dark laugh because I'm like, come on. Like, that's crazy. And it's a young girl like who's written down or said to her sister, God, I hate America. You know what I mean? It's the worst place on earth is then being used as like proof that she's against America. Right. That's I mean, I used to say that stuff all the time around (laughs) that and have said for years, you know, like all that felt so relatable to me. That sort of way pop way we all spoke like this kind of like cynical, uh, but then she actually cared about our country, right? Right, which is why she was leaking the information. She felt that people weren't being told the truth, yeah. Yeah, it's just such a bigger thing. And I actually think it's really hard to compare reality to those other two cases. To me, they're pretty 
obviously pretty different but yeah i think they are they yeah they i think that that's right i mean it's there's um even in like the jack Teixeira case which i've been writing a ton about yeah he, he, well, he wasn't a whistleblower i mean he was just right. appeared to be leaking things to sort of impress people and you know and one of the things i think is so also interesting about your film and, it, and it's surprising to me because you did just use the transcripts so there's really not any like editorializing by you in, in any like you know at least heavy way is the film does not come it's not a work of advocacy and so many times i think when people make movies about whistleblowers you know whether it's like oliver stone snowden or others um or where daniel ellsberg is portrayed in the post um right it is that you can feel the writer and the director leaning into it affirmatively and saying this was the right thing to do they did a good thing although a complicated thing but even though you're just using the transcript, I think it's actually a very sympathetic portrayal of reality winner. And I was a little bit surprised by that. I wasn't sure if my reaction was going to be, well, this just feels kind of compelling but clinical, and I don't walk away with it necessarily with a, a strong opinion or feeling that the filmmaker had an opinion. But it does seem like it's an empathetic portrayal of it. I don't know if you intended it to be that way or not, but it's just remarkable to me how it you kind of take her side in the end of it, I think, is that uh, the viewer does, I feel. Yeah, I mean, because you're hearing reality in her own words and because she actually sort of sticks with that conversation. Do you, like, you know, so many people are like, why didn't she call a lawyer? And it's like, I, I don't think many people have been know what it's like to have the FBI at your door. And oh, I don't. She was probably but I, terrified. Yeah. I totally, it's never, it doesn't seem weird to me at all that someone as smart as her didn't necessarily call the lawyer. But she, like, there's an earnestness to her, yes. actually, even though for a while she lies. And that's, those are her words. Like, yep. and then, and Sydney, of course, is doing a portrayal. And we, I guess you could have her like be looking really mad at them, but it's just not in the language. Like she's actually, cause the, the transcript even has the parts where she laughs. Like, you know, she was being very human with them. And then that incredible, to me, it's like this monologue you couldn't write. And I think of it as a monologue, you know, after she's done it all and they're like, you don't seem the type to do this. And reality winner says, I'm not, I'm not, I, you know, I want to go out with our special forces. It's such a human. And at that point she has nothing to lose. She's literally telling them everything sort of at that point, because I mean, she's smart enough at that point to definitely know that the jig is up and her life is changing by the minute and it's not going right. to be good. And she says that's to me, incredibly moving human thing of like, I sit in this place every day. Why do I have this job? I'm going to be helpless, which again, I feel so relatable to like, even if I'm not, don't have access to state secrets or things like if I did, you could see like, fuck it, I'm going to send this, excuse me for swearing. But, um, so I just think you get her in her own words and her own, those words have emotion no matter what way you choose to play them, I think. Yeah. So, so I think that you, that's again, what was so powerful to me of using the, this, this transcript was we, we heard her say that stuff and even like seeing the images of her that are her real images. Like she's just, she's like this very young, very essentially, I mean, she's got an extraordinary background, but she's also kind of a very basic 25 year old girl who yeah. doesn't really know what she's going to go do yet. And she says that yeah. to them too. Yeah. Um, so do you, as a, as a creator, do you want to return to other 
national security related stories? Does this feel like, uh, I mean, you, 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 as I'm sort of having this image of you jumping headfirst into experimental <laughs> theater and boy, you jumped headfirst into writing about like law enforcement and intelligence and secrecy. Cause it's a, it's a, it's quite a thing that has grabbed this transcript and portray it. Is, is that a subject matter you want to return to or, or, or what do you have, what do you have in mind next? If you can talk about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I love citizen four, right. I think that's really a great documentary. Yeah incredible documentary and I, and I love all of her work. Um, so I, like I've always said this and I, I could have read all the details of reality. And if it was a young man, I would, I don't think I would have been like, I'm making a movie about this. It hmm. was, I'm very, very drawn to, to like sort of female protagonists, complicated female. I, I just, it's really artistically interesting to, you know, it's what I've been mining in all my work. And that's why reality felt like such a natural, she's real, but she felt like this protagonist, like that was so up my alley. And so it was, but it, but I loved that, like that she would, that the, the stakes and the content were so important and big, like that was kind of an extra gift into it in a way. Do you know what I mean? But because mm -hmm. I, who the character was, what was most compelling to me over the fact like, oh my God, I've been dying to get my hands on a, you know, a thing about, you know, top security um, thriller stuff. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, I think I am interested because there's a couple other things I'm thinking about now and, and I didn't even realize this, but they, they're also about, and I hope I can say this like articulately, it turns out they're also about like women or female identities and bodies that where like our, our system and our laws don't protect them. So these moral questions come mm. up, if that makes sense. And I don't know that that will be my life's work either, but it turns out I'm innately drawn to that when I look back. So, so I don't, I don't know. Um, but it's not like I'm totally headed into stuff about like security and right, and right, yeah. Really. But I just, and yeah. I, and I, I love that too. I love that it. it's just so interesting because I think sometimes, you know, this whole this space gets very occupied by specialists, you know, who get very into it or like you know, people. I've interviewed spy novelists who only write spy novels, and I, and it, it was just so refreshing to see someone come to this subject matter who this isn't your normal terrain that you're working on. And it, right. I think it just, it, yeah. And for now, it, now it's making sense. Cause like you're watching it, you're like there's something very different about this film. It doesn't feel like a spy thriller, even though it has elements of it and has the tension, but it feels like something different. And it was just, um, it's just a, it's just, it's a really, really satisfying piece of work. Um, and are you going to keep making film now or do you, is your heart still in the theater? Do you want to do both? Um, I'd love to do both. I'm definitely like looking next to some other film stuff just because it's like those can take a while. I mean, theater can too. So yeah, but I'd love, I mean, my heart lies in so many ways in theater, but it, I'm like so curious and I mostly just like making things and the incredible cool challenges of getting to make movies um, has been super exciting. I mean, I'm so grateful I got the opportunity to do this and the incredible producers who believed in it. So I'm definitely like looking to, you know, see see what else I could do that and learn more and make more there for sure. Um, but yeah, and it seems like HBO yeah. is a great home for this movie too. That's how, by the way, people can see it is uh, streaming on HBO. I guess we call it Max now, but uh, but Max. obviously, yeah, a great a great history of just you know picking up some really wonderful independent filmmakers and. Um, and, uh, and, and doing this. So, 
Well, hopefully you'll get to do something else with them. Um, so it is our tradition. You can't see this because we're remote right now. But the last question that we ask all our guests on Shatter is I, I reach into the Chatter box, which is a physical box uh, that is <laughs> with a pre-written question that I'm going to select at random for you. You can hear me uh, moving the, the paper around. And this is going to be the, the last question I ask you. So here it goes. Okay. Um, oh, this is actually kind of funny, given what I just <laughs> what I just said about <laughs> you not making spy movies. Tell us your favorite or least favorite spy or political thriller movie or TV show, if you have one. I think my favorite is Wag the Dog. For oh, movies. that's so good. Yes. And then it was tied with Veep, though. I'm obsessed oh, with Oh, my Veep, God. So. I I always tell people, people think that House of Cards is how Washington works. I'm like, no, no, no. Veep is how Washington works. Is it Veep? Oh, my God. That makes me sad and and happy because right? it's so funny. Yes. No, but, but those are oh those are God. those are too great. I love Wag the Dog. That's you remind yeah. me. I have, I have not seen that movie in such a long time, but it is such a just like deliciously cynical film. I love that. Yes, story. yes, yes. I mean, it's one of those that like, gets come back to me. I'm like that imprinted on me. Do you know what I mean? Even yeah. though I didn't think like this was like the thing. I, so somehow that did imprint on me because I really remember thinking that was. Um, cool. Yeah. And I feel like any movie where De Niro is being super understated is like, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's fun. It's uh, great. Uh, well, Tina Satter, this has been such a really fun and interesting conversation. Again, the movie is reality. Folks should go check it out. Uh, congratulations. It's, it's terrific work. And thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us about it. Thank you so much. This was really, really fun to talk to you and I really appreciate it. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Chatter.